This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the broadcast. Thanks uh, so much for being aboard today. Coming up in hour two, John Forsland, Seattle Kraken play-by-play voice. Don't look now, but um, Seattle Kraken have won seven games in a row. Spectacular last night. Matty Beniers with the overtime heroics. Uh, we'll hear from John Forsland at the uh, top of the hour about uh, what is making this team tick. Hint, four balanced lines. Hint, getting saves. Uh, John Barlett from the NHL on Sportsnet and Hockey Night in Canada will see up the San Jose Ottawa game. In the meantime, uh, it's a real pleasure and delight to, to finally get a chance to talk to someone on the air uh, who I think we've all admired. I know I have for a number of years, but because of a goofy industry handshake, we weren't able to. But that uh, that is no longer. Uh, she's now senior host and producer with the Winnipeg Jets. She is Sarah Orleski. She joins me now. Sarah, how are you today? I'm doing great, and I've been looking forward to this too, Jeff. It's- it's been far too long. I've been an admirer for many years. <laughs> well, it's a mutual admiration society, um, you know, going back to the score days, too. Um, I, I want to jump right in with, with Winnipeg, and then if we have time, do a little uh, Orleski backstory and, and how you got to this, you know, plum spot that you're, that you're at now. Um, I think we looked at Winnipeg in the offseason and said, okay, how is Shevel Dayoff going to tear this thing apart? And not only did he not tear it apart, um, but he brought in a, you know, one of the most successful coaches um, and kind of left everything outside of taking the C off Blake Wheeler. And we all thought, okay, this is still way too quiet. There are moves coming, right? And they didn't come. The only thing that did were the wins. How have the Winnipeg Jets been able to do this? And I'll qualify it by saying, Sarah, is it as simple as just saying, well, Jeff, they're getting saves. That's the big difference. <laughs> Some similarities uh, between the two, between the two teams. No, it's not just that, though. I think that exactly what you said is true. That everyone, when the season ended last year, everyone waited to see what sort of moves were going to be coming. Obviously, they underperformed. They missed that second wild card spot by about eight points, mm-hmm. but individually, and then as a collective group. Not a good season for the Winnipeg Jets this year. And with some of the comments that we heard in the final weeks and then we heard in the final availabilities, you wondered what sort of changes needed to be made or might be forced upon them. And we didn't see them. But that addition of bringing Rick Bonus in as coach, I cannot overstate how much that has been a factor for this team that he has done such a tremendous job with this group Um, the entire coaching staff beyond obviously with Rick being the figurehead as head coach but that entire coaching staff there is a vibe around this team and I have covered this team since day one in Winnipeg there is a team mentality and a vibe around this team that I I don't remember to be honest seeing or feeling before with this group and we knew the talent that they had and depending going into this season Jeff, you could have looked at it and said okay he kept everybody you know by and large the same group from last year mm-hmm. this could be a problem or you could look at it and say okay well if they all buy in and everyone gets back to playing the way that you know that they can because of the talent this could be mm-hmm. a group that does really well because that's what we thought going into last season. Everyone thought that the Jets, okay, Jets are going to, the Jets were pegged to be one of the top teams yeah. in Canada. We thought that they were going to be able to be in the running for the top spot in the Central. Didn't pan out that way. It is just, it is a different feeling around this group this season. You know, the uh, I want to circle back to your point about Rick Bonus because I think it's a salient one. The one thing that I've um, that I've always liked about Bonus, and we saw this in Detroit after or, uh, Dallas rather, uh, when he took over from Jim Montgomery. I've been trying to find a, a, a way to couch it and a way to phrase it as to what it is that um, that Bonus does that other coaches don't. And the thing I keep coming back to is when there is a situation that needs dealing with, whether it's individually or whether it's collectively, here's a guy who consistently chooses conversation over confrontation. I remember one instance with the Dallas Stars where, you know, they were going through, I think it was like a four or five game losing streak. And like it was bad performance after bad performance. Special teams were awful. Goalies were leaking pucks, missed a sign, like the whole deal, Sarah. And, Normally where a coach would come in, you know, look at the trash can and kick it, 
I'm told from people that were there, you know, Bonus walked in, pulled a chair up, uh, sat down in the middle of the room and said, okay, no one's getting angry here. We're just going to talk. And everyone's going to be able to say their piece, and we're going to keep talking until we find some solutions here. And something as simple as that, like it doesn't happen overnight, but eventually the Dallas Stars started to turn it around. Now that comes with, you know, age and wisdom, and, you know, Rick Bonus has, you know, been around forever, <laughs> it seems, in the NHL in some capacity. But does that resonate with you, Sarah, knowing Rick Bonus as you do? It's conversation over confrontation. Absolutely. I think that you'll hear any players, whether they be the current players with the Jets or you look at ones that had been with him previously, that he wants to know about them as people and what's going on with them. But he's also, he is such a great communicator. And that's what's really resonated with me when speaking with players is that they feel that now there is a, a very defined game in going through into how mm. things are supposed to look. There is, he's very black and white. And I think it's been really appreciated by this group that there is, he holds everybody accountable, regardless of where you are in the lineup and what role you play. But everybody knows what the expectations are. Everything is really clearly defined for them. So if the game, granted, mm-hmm. every game may not look perfect, but you know, if it does, this is what player X is supposed to do. This is what his priority is. This is what player Y is supposed to do. And I give credit to the players as well, because look, they have bought in. They have, he's yeah. really emphasized the team mentality as opposed to looking at this as being, you know, individuals that are out for their, you know, while you're playing as a team, I think that at times, obviously, we see some players maybe be concerned more about their own individual game, where everything has been about the team. And he, you always hear him reference family. We are a family. We do everything together for each other. Um, it is about the collective group, the guy to the left, to the right, across from you. And it is just, it's something that's really resonated with these players. And I think that this is a group that really wants, you have a lot of really um passionate hockey players on here you also have some that have very high hockey iqs that are you know we always talk about mark shifley you can look at cole perfetti number of yep. different players josh morrissey that want to want to improve their game constantly looking to learn and are getting that instruction whether it be via video um on ice where they're communicating okay not only are they looking at what the team needs to do, but these coaches are prioritizing as well. Okay, this is how you can improve. This is how you can get 5% mm-hmm. better. This is how, and, and little details that I think maybe sometimes get overlooked, that this coaching staff as a whole has done a great job, I'm told, of communicating um, with the players. And they like I said, it, it's a credit to the coaching staff. I also think it's a credit to the players because this is something that from the very beginning they have bought into. You know, I remember having a conversation with Sarah Orleski. Um, I remember having a conversation once with Rick Bonus about Victor Hedman when he was in, when, uh, when Bonus was in Tampa. And, you know, Rick you know, has mainly handled, you know, the, 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 uh, the defenseman um, uh, behind the bench. And I said, how did you, how did you work with Hedman? And he told me something really interesting. Uh, I'm not, not telling tales out of school. Like this was on the, the the podcast. He said, "Well, first of all, you have to know, especially early in his career, Victor Hedman had a real deep suspicion of coaches, and he, there wasn't a whole lot of trust there between him and various coaches growing up, and that bled right into the NHL." And I said, "So what did you do?" And he said, it took a lot of conversations, Sarah, to your point about talking to players. And he said, what I would do is every day, you know, I would talk to Victor Hedman, but I would never talk to him about hockey. Hockey, mm-hmm. I just refused to talk about hockey. We talked about everything else. And only when I got his trust, then could I start talking to Victor Hedman about hockey. Um, and I thought that was really neat, where some coaches might just start right away hammering on about hockey. Bonus wanted to build the relationship first. Is there someone in your mind, like you look at this Winnipeg Jets team, and you know all these players, and you know, they, you've, as you mentioned, you've been there from day one. Is there is there one or two players that you look at that you say, okay, maybe there's been issues with coaches previous, 
um, and that Bonus needs to maybe do some repairing here, and he's the right guy because this is the way he handles things. Well, on the, I mean, on the surface and just looking to what we saw last season, I think that you could look to Mark Shifley for it. You look at the game that mm-hmm. we've seen and whether or not that was, you know, relationships that need to be repaired between a player and coach. I think that the change that we have seen in his game, 21 games into this season, the 200 foot game that he's playing, which what was he criticized for most last season? It was the fact that you didn't see that. <laughs> and that was an element right. where you weren't seeing him um, back check and you weren't seeing that defensive element to it. And so his game, you know, where he had been on this upward ascent early on in his career and it had kind of plateaued and he has bought in. And the difference that you've seen in him since the start of training camp to now, and he's one of those players when I say about, you know, going over the details of the game on video, anyone that's spoken to Mark or that, and that's interviewed him knows that there are two things that he loves to talk more than anything. First is hockey, and he will talk your ear off to the minutia of oh, it yeah. but, and love it. it. Yeah, or golf. Yeah. In the off-season, it's golf. <laughs> but, but he loves that. <laughs> so, to have, so to have coaches yeah. that are willing to get really detailed with him um, and improve him because that's what he wants to do. He is all about getting better all the time. But I think that you see the role that he's done. And Rick has just come in, and I feel as if he got a good sense of the team from everyone that he spoke to during the summer when he had his conversations with players. And back to that idea of Hedman, of getting to know him. Or so many of the players that when he talked to them, it was learning about the player, not about the on-ice elements, learn about the player and about the man. And I think that he was able to read room well. You look at the job that Blake Wheeler has done this season. A lot of questions when the C was removed. I mean, obviously a lot of headlines, a lot of questions as to how Blake would respond to that. He has responded. He's been incredibly classy from the beginning as to uh, when the situation happened. But you could argue that he looks freer on the ice and is and the way that he's playing without some of that weight, that it's actually, this this has turned out to be a really good thing for Blake, both on the ice and in the room. And I just, you know, we're not early on in the season anymore, being 21 games in, but I just, it's been really impressive to me in generally in short order that this, to see the change with the group. It's, it's a fun group to watch on the ice. It is a fun group to talk to. Um, around the rink as well. And you hear that echoed in their comments after the game, their win against Colorado. And obviously winning helps. We all know that. But Connor Halbuck spoke sure. about how much fun it is right now. It's fun to come to the rink. And, and that's something that bonus is really stressed. 82 games, it is a long, long season. You need guys to have fun mm-hmm. and want to come to the rink. And so inevitably when adversity hits, we'll see how they respond. But I think yeah. that the groundwork, that has been laid through October, through October November, uh, will hopefully be able to carry them through because it's been fun to watch so far. So what's it going to be like, Sarah, tonight? It's uh, the Blue Jackets in town. Looks like line A's a go. Um, has there been enough distance between, you know, now and the trade that this is just, oh, it's just another game and CBJ's in town? Or is there... Is there still some spice in this chili for uh, for a Patrick Laine return to Winnipeg? So I think there will always be some spice when with Patrick Laine returning. I think that obviously the the time and uh, he had he's been he's had to deal with so many injuries since he's left Winnipeg. But yep. I don't think that we've you know we've been able to see him really at the level that that many would have expected had he of course been able to stay healthy. More, but I think there's always a little bit of excitement, and you know that. Um, this will be a game that regardless of how much time has passed, that I think there's still obviously enough, enough people around that and players around that, that Patrick will look forward to being able to come back here and, and putting on a show. Cause you know, that, you know, that he can, <laughs> the skill is, the skill is oh, yeah. there. So it, it'll certainly, it has the potential to be, uh, it has the potential to be, uh, a good one, but it it's certainly, I don't think it has the same sort of spice as what it did way earlier, just with sure. everything that he's had to deal with and, 
everything, but the excitement just in this building, um, regardless mm-hmm. of who comes in now, they're eight and two at home. It's, it's fun. I don't know how you feel about individual goal songs, Jeff, but that's such mm-hmm. a small element that has also added to the atmosphere. It's like, it, is, it is a fun, it's a fun place to be around and to watch a game. Yeah, listen, it's always been one of my favorites. Uh, I think uh, amongst amongst um, hockey fans, Winnipeg, and we saw this right out of the get-go, like some of the most creative hockey fans in the NHL to, you know, you know the silver medal chance to Ryan Miller, Crosby's better to a vet. Like, honestly, when you look at creativity of a fan base, uh, Winnipeg's right up there near the top. Okay, only got a couple of minutes, like two minutes left with you here, Sarah. And, and here's something that I'm, I'm really curious about. And for me, the answer is Dustin Bufflin. I miss Dustin Bufflin. I'm curious because you've been there from day one with the Winnipeg Jets. Go a little historical with us here. Who do you miss covering? Which ex-Jet do you wish? Ah, oh, I wish this guy was still on the team. Okay, so, I mean, Dustin would be given for what he could do on this, but he never spoke to media often. So it's not like you really got to right. talk to him, but you certainly miss seeing the elements that he could bring on the ice because he was a lot of fun. And I don't think, I will go to my grave saying, I don't think that he got enough credit for his, the way that he processed the game. Because when you did have the chance to 100%. speak to him, especially one-on-one, intermission yes. interviews were, you know, sometimes granted, they can be pretty blasé. I always felt his ability to break down the game as one-on-one when he was willing to, he didn't get enough credit for just mm-hmm. how he was able to see it. Um, and then if I was looking at someone that was filing every day, I mean, Patrick Lyon was pretty great because he had an honesty <laughs> at times about yep. <laughs> sometimes too hard about him on himself. But I mean, yeah. you never knew, you never wanted to miss it because you never knew what gold that you would get in terms of, of sound bites and hockey yep. is hard. And, and he was just someone that you could joke around with, but as a, but so you miss covering guys like that or seeing guys like that around, but with the, vibe around this team right now there are a lot of guys that are showing off their personalities that you always knew were there but they never for whatever reason really showed them before i think that you're starting to see that more and more with this group and i think you'll see more and more personalities continue to come out well, there's been some great performances. We didn't even get to scratch the surface on Josh Morrissey, who's having an outstanding season, or really dive into anything about Connor Hallibuck and ditto for him. Uh, already Which means I have to come back on sometime, Jeff. Uh, I was going to say, that's the cheese in the trap to get you back here on the show, so hopefully you, you try to grab it there, Sarah. Um, thanks so much for stopping by. This has been a real delight. Hope to do it again real soon. Enjoy the game tonight. Uh, I know it's, oh, here we go. It's just another one, but Patrick Liney's in town. I guess it's a big deal. I, anyway, in my little hockey world, it is. I, I hope it is in yours and Winnipeg Jets fans as well. Enjoy it, Sarah. We'll catch up soon. I look forward to it. Thanks for having me on, Jeff. There she is, the great Sarah Orleski, uh, senior host and producer for the Winnipeg Jets. Tonight, uh, one of only a couple of games on the board around the NHL, the Winnipeg Jets hosting the Columbus Blue Jackets. And yes, it looks like Patrick Laine is good to go. Uh, the Islanders and Preds uh, face off against one another this evening. The Rangers, looks like Shesterkin goes again, despite what he said about himself earlier on this week. Uh, the Rangers face off against the Ottawa Senators. Uh, we'll take a break. Uh, John Forslund, play-by-play voice of the... We're on a seven-game win streak. Seattle Kraken joins me in moments. John Bartlett as well. And Maddie and I are going to try to figure out who the toughest and most skilled front offices are around the NHL. Plenty more to get to. Glad to have you aboard. Stick around. Hour two is coming up next. Covering the Raptors in depth like no one else. The Raptor Show with Will Lou. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. They are one of the most exciting teams in the NHL. They have won seven games in a row, including a thrilling, albeit brief, overtime victory against the Washington Capitals last night. They are the Seattle Kraken. John Forsland is their play-by-play voice, and he joins me now. John, how are you today? Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. How are you? 
Uh, I'm well. The pleasure is uh, the pleasure is all mine. There's, there's a lot I want to get to with you on this uh, on this Kraken team, but let's just start. You know, wide brush before we you know get down to some more of the the, the minutia about the the Seattle Kraken and the squad. Um, what is the main difference that you've seen between last year's team and this year's team? Well, I think a lot of it is intangible. I think a lot of it is um, based on human relations and and getting through a COVID year, which, um, you know, it hit every team, right, Jeff? It hit every team hard. Yeah. But you think about an expansion team with with 23 different individuals coming in with different stories. You know, some guys were uh, confused as to why they were unprotected. Some guys were upset. Some guys looked at it as a great opportunity. All that being said, they come together and they're restricted in terms of how they relate as teammates. Um, it was a it was a weird, challenging season to watch them go through this uh, with the constant testing, the masking, the uh, the situations on the road where you're basically isolated. So a lot of teams already had a built-in chemistry within their room and maybe they could navigate through it easier than the Kraken did. I think that had a lot to do with it because I've seen um, a different type of uh, um, just the demeanor among the guys when they returned to begin training camp. Fresher, more familiar, used to the city, used to each other, and now they're free, free to be a team. So their 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 chemical chemical equation has been working since the very beginning. The key was executing a, a system and a game plan and coming together as a team, and they've done a very good job at that. And uh, Ron Francis made some adjustments in the offseason to the roster, addressed some glaring weaknesses, made a lot of key trades at the trading deadline. So all these things come together, um, but I really think that that has a lot to do with it. And, and organizationally, there was no nobody to dip into in terms of call-ups and support when they had injuries or COVID, too, because of the expansion nature of the yeah. roster, right? So I think that had something to do with it, too. You know, one of the things that, you know, I was saying this to Elliot the other day, I can't remember if it was on the radio or on the, on the podcast, that one of the things that I admire and agree with when it comes to Seattle Kraken, there is this very much a, a, a new skill, a, a, a new sort of a new school philosophy of roster construction, which is if you can improve any position with skill, no matter how slight an improvement it might be, you do it. You always do it. And you mentioned some of the offseason and moves, whether it's Andre Burakovsky, uh, whether it's Oliver Bjorkstrand, which, you know, kind of fell into Seattle's laps, but they had the environment for it to work and happen, and it's worked out great for the Kraken so far. Um, to someone like Daniel Sprong, and I want to park some time talking about him in a second, it seems as if, you know, Ron Francis, it's almost like a Carolina vibe, too, uh, where he came from, which is if yeah. I can improve any position, even slightly, I'm going to do it because the accumulative effect is going to take us where we need to go. Do you think that's an accurate way to look at the Kraken? Absolutely. I mean, and you know this because you, you, you follow the numbers and you have done done this for a number of years. You know, they looked at their underlying numbers, right? And they looked at how the game was being played and they're about a goal short across the board, right? So he had to improve the team, yeah. uh, whether it be better goaltending, that's the obvious one. But they like their defensive structure. They like some of the uh, shot suppression, all that stuff, a near one. But they needed yep. to improve by a goal. So you do it by committee. You're not going to get there. Um, you know, with star players, that's just not going to happen with an expansion team. So you're going to have to kind of balance out your roster. So by adding Bjorkstrand, by by getting Burakovsky in free agency, by having a healthy Jaden Schwartz, which they didn't have last year, a healthier Brandon Tanev, who went out with a knee injury in the middle of December, it, it really sucked the life out of the team, the locker room, the fan base. You know, you bring all of that in and you've got balance and that's what they have. You know, they have four lines that contribute. They've got three defense pairs that have been together all season. The goaltending has been better. You know, all these things come together and then they have a nice little team concept working, right? So it's all, it's not a surprise. I don't think they're going to fall off the map. Like people expect them to fall off, fall off the map. I don't think so. I think, you know, I watch them every day. I watch them practice every day. They have unity. And so they'll lose, and they have a tough schedule in the second half, more travel. They've been at home a lot in the front half of the season, but they're, they're, yeah. they're banking points now. They're putting themselves in a good spot. 
You know, you mentioned, you know, you're not going to do it by having one star, but there is very much a star that's emerging uh, with this team right now. He's 20 years old, even though he looks like he's 30, uh, and that's Matt Beneers. He has been, like you talk about, you know, players that galvanize your squad, players that give you an extra pop uh, when you need it. Do you have a thought on on Matty Beneers here? Because you talk about... You know, and we all know about developing rookies and how it takes time. And don't spend, ex, don't see your expectations too high. I mean, he's just shy of a point a game at 20 years old. Um, do you have a thought or two on on Matt Beniers and, and what you've seen out of him? Yeah, I, I really believe he's the the future of the franchise. He's going to be a real big piece that they'll build around for a number of years. It's already kind of getting to that spot. You're right. You want to temper expectations. You want to recognize that the league can humble any player, certainly a 20-year-old, a kid coming out of college hockey, coming out of uh, COVID situations over two years. You know, where is he going to be? He comes in at the end of last season, has a nice 10 games, nine points, um, puts on uh, about 11 pounds, they told me, at the beginning of the season over the summer, which is natural from 19 to 20, but I think he worked on some of his leg strengths. Um, And then what I point to recently is this. Uh, Jeff, he went through a six-game stretch where he didn't have any points, okay? And I didn't see a player try to cheat himself or the game. I didn't see a player take shortcuts. I didn't see a player get demoralized. And remember now, after a great start, a torrid start, his number gets circled in the other room. So they're marking him defensively. They're hitting him hard. They're trying to knock him off his game. He gets up. He makes real good defensive plays. And along with this offensive prowess that he has, terrific goal last night, leading rookie scorer. But he reminds me of a guy who wore number 10 back way back when with the Hartford Whalers as boss, okay? <laughs> and when 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 Ron Francis, when, and some people might have to Google all this stuff. I understand that. Um, but when but when Ron, but when Ronnie broke in, um, fourth overall pick, you'll recall, um, great looking oh, yeah. guy, all the all the charisma. And he went to a bad team, and he elevated that team the best he could through the 80s until he got to Pittsburgh, right? And, and, but I think Ronnie has been there, and, and that's why in his case and in Shane Wright's case, he understands what these kids are going through. It's not an easy process, and not every process is the same. For Beniers, this is a, this is a, a home run so far. Um, but he's got the intelligence that Ronnie had at a young age, too, as I recall watching him. And so um, this is going to be very very interesting to watch as we move forward here. But there's no question this this young man will be a cornerstone for the franchise. Yeah, he really uh, – he's, he's, he's a remarkable young player. Um, uh, I, I do want to get to Daniel Sprong here because, you know, the, one of the things that I look at with the crack, and this is one of the points that I've been making with people who, whenever the, the conversation turns to Seattle, um, I always talk about production up and down the lineup and how many lines do you have that can score and, you know, what are you getting out of your third line and, and what's your, you know, do you have a fourth line that can produce or do you have a fourth line that are just going to go out there and, and hopefully play 50-50, you know, give the other team, give the other lines a, a rest, um, maybe draw a penalty, send your team on the power play, etc. The one thing that I look at with Seattle is how balanced the scoring is and one number really stands out to me as a as a as a fourth line winger, Daniel Sprong, and there's no denying the skill here. Fourteen points in sixteen right. games, another assist picked up last night. Um, yeah, and that goes back to the point about whenever you can improve a skill, you do it. That's the Ron Francis model, the old Hurricanes model, etc. You have a thought on on Daniel Sprong through all of this because it really we we know the places where it hasn't worked out. Why does it seem to be working out with Seattle? Because he, he understood on July 1st that nobody wanted him. You know, he even said it himself. He said that was the, the wake up call, uh, July 1st or mm-hmm. whatever the date was, I know it was adjusted. Right. So, but free agency yeah, yeah, it was and a when that date after, yeah. came and, and yeah, when that day came and, and went, he understood that 32 teams, including the team he just played for at the end of the year, were saying no. So he had a look at himself. I'm not sure. I'm not going to speak for him. I don't know what had to be adjusted, but he came to camp on a PTO. He earned a spot on the team. Every day he did something, whether it was in practice or preseason games. You know, as you know, he has a skill set. He can shoot the puck better than most players. 
in the league, never mind on his team, mm-hmm. but that's something about him. He hasn't been able to break the seal. So he made the team and he's an option. And now he's become a go-to option on a power play, either unit uh, weak side slapper. But last night, you're right. Fourth line to start the game. Game's not going exactly the way Dave Haxtell wants it. Makes a tweak, puts Sprung up on the third line with Gordon Tanev, drops Bjorkstrand down. Bjorkstrand didn't play for a long stretch last night. So, you know, those are the interchangeable parts that we talked about at the top. That's what they have. And uh, and, and now he, he's another one of these guys that I see a little bit of a glow. When he came to the team last year, he was kind of sullen. I think he's always been that way as an outside observer looking at this young man. Um, he's had expectation attached to him as a young player. It didn't work out in a number of places. Um, but he was kind of a, a defeated guy when he joined the Kraken. He's traded out of Washington, came here, tried to make a goal of it, but the team was going nowhere. It was a kind of a bad situation at the end of the season. Um, but this year, there's, there's smiles and, and there's personality, and he's just fitting in with the group. Mm-hmm. But he has that skill set that you're right. It's, it's an interesting piece on a fourth line. You can grind your fourth line, or you could have a fourth line that has players who can bump up in the order. And that's, and that's kind of how the Kraken are built. Okay, so I have <laughs> uh, I have a theory about Daniel Sprong because I, I know exactly what you're saying, John. So here, here, here's my theory. Let me know if this resonates with you a lot uh, or, or not, rather. If you look at his backstory, I mean, he's from Amsterdam. That's where the, the, the family's from. Mm-hmm. And he came to Canada. His father brought him to Montreal at a very young age. Uh, to play hockey. He was an exceptional talent. And, you know, listen, we're not going to get much here. We need, we need to go to Canada. So he goes to Montreal, and every season he played on a different team. Every season it was a different travel team he was on. Got to get you in this program. Dad's taking him to this program, to that program, mm-hmm. all over North America. Like, as a young, he's even went to Wilkes-Barre um, to play youth yeah. hockey as well. Like, he's really young. So there weren't, there were, he didn't really get a chance to get, like, a real attachment to teammates because he was always leaving. He was always going somewhere else. Right. As a matter of fact, it wasn't until he got to the Quebec League uh, in junior that he played for a team two seasons in a row with the Charlottetown Islanders. I remember talking to his old GM, Grant Sonier, about this, who's now a scout with, uh, with the Tampa Bay Lightning, that that was the first time he had ever been on a team for more than one season. And he actually got to mm-hmm. feel what that was like. But those formative, those formative years... He was just he was just team jumping, team hopping, finding something better, finding right. a better level of competition. I always wonder what effect that has down the road. Maybe I'm reading way too much into this, John, but that, that's kind of how I've always felt about Sprong. No denying the skill. It is elite. Just the ability to stick with a team and understand what a team is, I've always felt that that might be the one thing that always held Daniel Sprong back. Right. And, and, and when that's happening and again, only he can answer, right. Only he can answer exactly how he feels when you're a young boy and you're going through that. It sounds like, you know, your dad or your family is doing the best they can to make you a player. And hopefully that's what the young player wants. The young boy wants, but a lot of times it isn't, you know, so it's a, it's a hard situation. Um, He reached his goal. He reached his goal. And, but what's the price you pay? You know, um, uh, you got to look long and hard at that. When you look at youth hockey and, and being a hockey parent and all that stuff, I, we went through it. I know what it's like. So, I mean, it's a, it's a mm-hmm. situation that that looks like there's a clearer sky in a, in a city where there's a lot of cloudiness. Right. So so hopefully this is a, <laughs> is this a good situation uh, for Daniel Spong? Yeah. He's a really good young man. He really is. And the teammates love him. I watch him every day, Jeff. Um, he just pummels puck after puck after puck, and oh, yeah. uh, and he works hard. He's a he's a good he's a hard worker with a tremendous skill set. So uh, this could be a great story moving forward. Let's hope so. Hope so. Uh, let, let me let me close on this. Um, give me you mentioned youth hockey. Give me a sense. I'm always curious about you know NHL team pops into the market. What does that do for youth hockey there? How is the the youth hockey hockey market in Seattle right now, John? Uh, it's a goal for the team to improve it. So to get their own AAA system, to get the junior crack and AAA program in place, I think that's an ultimate goal moving forward. It's not here. There are AAA programs, and right. most of the boys and girls have to travel 
to other places to play AAA level. So there's strong AA hockey here, but uh, there's an $85 million practice facility with three sheets just waiting to be the place, uh, similar to what the Penguins have done with Penn's Elite, right? So that's that's kind oh, of, um, I think, yeah. what's uh, on the horizon. And, uh, and, and so, uh, you know, I went through it in Carolina. I mean, we, there was not triple a hockey there. There is a triple a program there. And, uh, my son played in the first squirt team way back when in the, uh, I think it was 2008, hey. nine, whatever it was, triple a, and they went around the country and got pummeled by everybody. Right. So, uh, I, I know what it's like, but they have done a nice job there with the program and it, it's respectable. So similar situation here. Um, there's, as you know, rich junior hockey here and always has been in some pro hockey over the years uh, at the minor league level right so there's hockey tradition but they they can do better with the kids and that's a key to building your fan base and uh, uh, it's part of the initiative the Kraken are all about as an organization I mean there's so many community projects a team undertakes it's absolutely unbelievable a lot of great things happening here but that would be one of them yeah that's uh that that program that you mentioned that Penn's elite program that is if you're if that's the model that's being followed hallelujah because that is uh that is elite yeah. and a great program and we just saw Logan Cooley drafted um, third overall and remember the name John Mooney jr he's I think he's 13 or 14 best in the United States in in his age group and he's actually Logan Cooley's cousin as well that program continues to crank out uh, elite players well I'll tell you what the Kraken are playing elite seven straight wins uh, looks great on the organization Thanks, John, as always, for sharing some of your time with us today. Thanks, Jeff. My pleasure. Have a great day. There he is. John Forsland is the play-by-play voice of the Seattle Kraken. A fun win last night in overtime. Right off the bat, Matty Veneers. I'll take this. I'm scoring. I'm calling game. The Kraken have won seven straight. Second place in the Pacific. Have it a wink at the Las Vegas Golden Nights. Meanwhile, tomorrow, always a busy night on Hockey Night in Canada, San Jose Sharks and the Ottawa Senators. My good friend John Bartlett will handle the affairs of this one, and he joins me now. Barts, how are you today, pal? I'm very good. Jeffy, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. From the uh, from the the teams that you've seen, I want to drill down on Ottawa and San Jose here in a couple of seconds. But I'm I'm always curious about you know this time of year you start to see trends. Uh, teams get hot, teams get cold. Players get hot, players get cold. But through all of it, and one of the things that we're looking at here is you know save percentages down, goals are up, no lead is sacred around the NHL anymore. Um, from what you've seen, from what you've called. Uh, what are some of the more intriguing trends that you've seen so far at the uh, the quarter mark here, John? Yeah, the leads, the leads, right? I mean, that that yeah. that seems to be something that's really trending through the league now. You, we went through an era where you used to have a two goal lead early in a game and figure that's it, pack up the shop, it's 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 night over. But uh, not anymore. Uh, you know, you've seen so many times where a team will. You know, have a two-goal lead maybe in the first period, and you, you just don't have the feeling that uh, it's going to end uh, this way at all tonight. And um, I don't know exactly yeah. what I can't put my finger on exactly what it is that that has teams now just believing, hey, comebacks are, are no problem. We just have to keep rolling. Maybe it's the youth. Maybe it's the you know uh, naive uh, young players in the league that that never believe they're out of a game and and just find their way back in one way or another. But uh, we've seen a lot of games this year that have been incredibly entertaining simply because uh, of the comebacks um, and no lead is is really safe. So it's been fun to watch that way. That's for sure. You know, Elliot and I have talked about this uh, a few different times. And the one thing that we've sort of settled on, because I'm with you, like I, I think this is, Definitely a thing, and hopefully it doesn't go away. Although coaches always wreck it, John, you know that. But um, <laughs> of course, yeah. it, it seems as if with with with, with all it ruin all the fun. Uh, with all the rule changes and the premium on the various skills, specifically shooting and getting into high percentage areas and taking high percentage shots, you know, maybe the whole time that we've been looking at goaltenders and saying, well, if we want to, you know, juice the goal scoring here, we need to shrink the pads or make the nets bigger. Well, that's proven to be wrong because the net is the same size. The goalies are still big, uh, but players now all have individual shooting coaches. We all understand how to, how to manufacture offense. What the one thing that we're wondering about now is maybe, and this is the law of unintended consequences too. opening up the game has made it, more difficult to defend in your own zone than ever before 
Mm-hmm. And maybe that's one of the reasons here that you're seeing more, like you can't chop and you can't like cross check no. and pick a, shove a guy. Like, like that's all gone. Even like the idea of like, okay, we can't do that. So it's all about fronting and fronting and ways to get around all of that too. Like maybe it's, we thought that goaltenders would be under assault with the new rules package, which really isn't new because it goes back to 05. But maybe after all, we're at a place now where it's not the goalies that are under assault, but it's defensemen that are under assault. And it is easier than ever to get to the net, get to that home plate area to take those high percentage shots. Yeah, I, I've heard you and Elliot talk about that, and I think there's a lot of merit to that for sure. Uh, you always talk about going to the dirty area, right? Which, as you said, that home plate area yep. in front of the net, that's what coaches talk about protecting. And, you know, you used to have guys say that uh, you had to pay the price to get a goal when you go into that area. Um, the price maybe isn't yeah. the same now, uh, but also you're right in the sense of uh, the way that the skilled shooting and, and even passing. Um, how many times now do you see, I'm, I'm going to use a great example. We saw it last night in the Montreal-Calgary game, and I can think back a couple of weeks ago to the dying seconds in the Montreal-Philadelphia game. Cole Caulfield, Nick Suzuki. Suzuki can make a cross-ice pass through the seam, yeah. through traffic, and put it right on his tape, and Caulfield puts it in the back of the net. Did it on the power play last night in Calgary, and he did it to tie that game against yeah. Philadelphia on a Saturday night a couple of weeks ago. That is, a, that is a crazy kind of play. And, and you talk about the goaltenders. How are they supposed to read that kind of play and that kind of a shot, right? So you, I, I think you guys have a lot of merit with what you're saying. Uh, you know, it's, it, the defense can't defend the same way physically uh, that you used to in the game. So that makes yeah. it trickier. And then now you've got the skill of these kind of young players that can thread the needle on that kind of a pass, cross ice, with all those sticks and legs in the lane, uh, in the lane onto the yeah. tape and into the back of the net. So the combo of those two, my goodness, it's it's a challenge for sure for goaltenders and defense in the league now. And that's that's another reason why we see leads yeah. evaporating because players have the confidence to make those kind of plays. That's the other thing. It's one thing to be able to do it. It's another thing to have confidence to pull it off in the middle of a game to say, yeah, I'm going to make this uh, percentage pass because I know I'll get it there, which is, which is crazy skill to see around the league. You know, I, I wonder, too, if part of it, um, and I want to get to Ottawa and San Jose, I swear, I, I, I wonder <laughs> if part of it, John, is just, you know, coaches now more so than ever, and I think players and fans and broadcasters, we all went along with the idea that you can't manufacture offense. Like, that's the fun zone. You're your own player. Do whatever you want. You can't teach goals. What was the old saying? You can't teach touch, right? You used to always yeah. say, oh, you can't teach touch. You know, Bossy was born with it. You know, like, you know, <laughs> Yari Curry was just born with it. Well, that's been proven to be wrong. You can teach touch, and you can teach goal scoring. You can teach offense, and you know, I, I think a lot of coaches now, and maybe Marty St. Louis, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Montreal, he might be the best one at empowering his players. You know, whether it's, you know, Cole Caulfield or Yuri Slavkovsky last night, Pot's a nice one, or, you know, you mentioned Nick Suzuki, to, to empower his players to take those chances and make those plays. Like, I can't help but yeah. think, and there are some old school coaches way back in the day who would have looked at some of these plays and said, not on my watch, in hell do you make that pass. That's not being said anymore, John. That's not. No, it's not. And, you know, a funny thing about Marty St. Louis, as much as everyone talks about he's a modern coach with a modern approach, right? And he talks about, I don't want to coach the player with the puck. I want to coach the four other players without the puck because that's the future. The one that has the puck is the present. The future is, is the ones yeah. that don't. And what we do next, isn't that Walter Gretzky telling Wayne, skate where the, to where the puck is oh, going, yeah. not where it is, right? It's, it's kind of like yeah. as, as modern of approach as, as St. Louis has brought in some aspects, it's almost a throwback to what Walter taught Wayne, you know, read the play, be ahead of the play. And uh, it's kind of funny that way when you think of the similarities, even though it's, it's considered to be a very modern look, but that's the way St. Louis is approaching it. It changes the game a little. Excellent point. Uh, Alongside John Bartlett, tomorrow hockey night in Canada, Ottawa senators, San Jose sharks, which means John, Eric Carlson. Now, which era? I mean, this year's Eric Carlson seems like the Eric Carlson when he was, I don't know, 26 years old and playing with the Ottawa Senators and, you know, doing whatever he wanted with the puck. And it was, you know, zone exits that looked easy and, you know, casual three point nights and sauce <laughs> passes that landed on the tape that went over two zones. Do you have a thought on, you know, where this is all coming from? Like, I. I mean, half joking to people like, did he go to Lourdes in the off season, bathe up in holy water, heal all of his injuries that he's, you know, found the fountain of youth? Like, where is this coming from with Eric Carlson, John Bartlett? Please explain. 
Yeah, not too bad, right? 32 points on the year. That's that's kind of the Carlson that right. everyone here in Ottawa used to know. Uh, yeah. And sometimes sometimes that's what it is. You just have a little resurgence and, and healthy, right? If you're feeling good and you get off to a good yeah. start, that just builds momentum for any kind of a player. We've seen a lot of players battle through injuries, and then they have that healthy season where they get off to a good start, and, and then away they go and they feel good and evolve. I think, I think that's part of it for Carlson. I think there's been a bit of a a culture shift and a dynamic shift through the San Jose Sharks uh, as well with changes on the blue line and uh, through that organization. So it's just kind of a, you know, turning a fresh page for Carlson. And I think an opportunity for him maybe to turn the clock back a little bit, Um, whatever the future holds for him and San Jose will, you know, that remains to be seen. But, uh, but for him, I, I think that that's exactly what it is. He's having one of those years where, um, everything's a little bit of a different uh, feel. Everything was a little bit of a clean sheet, and you feel good, look good, feel good, and then you feel it in the game and on your ice and on the ice, and away you go. So I, I think that's kind of kind of the you know situation Carlson's got himself in this year, which is is fun to watch for that kind of a player. That's the kind of entertainment you like to see from from him. Yeah, it uh, it, it it really is, and this is going to be a tough couple of game couple of games here for the Ottawa Senators uh, tonight. They're facing off against the New York Rangers tomorrow, as you mentioned. It's the San Jose Sharks. Um, I'll just be blunt. It's real hard in Ottawa right now at every single level, uh, whether it's injuries, um, whether it's performance, whether it's um, fan apathy. Oh, here we go. We've been through this again. But there was like so much excitement built up in the offseason, whether it was the signings, you know, here's Tim Stutzler's new deal, Josh Norris, whether it was free agents, oh, Claude Giroux, whether it was the trades on the first day of the draft in Montreal, meet Alex Debrinkit, your new member of the Ottawa Senators. Like, it wasn't supposed to go like this. Like, I don't know whether playoffs were a legitimate target for the Ottawa Senators, but I know Connor Bedard certainly wasn't. Um, what does this thermometer say what does the thermometer say about the Ottawa Senators right now in the nation's capital? Yeah, I, a little hot from fans, but probably a, a disappointed hot for all those reasons. Um, you know, for, yeah. first of all, just to touch on, on the weekend you talk about, they have this home and home with the Rangers right now. And the Rangers, I know that they've, they've got two against Ottawa and one against Chicago. Uh, starting back on Wednesday and then tonight and this weekend. So they're looking at that as we need the six points because they're right behind the Red Wings. They want to get back in. So it's it's huge for the New York Rangers, and they know that this run. So a uh, big one for Ottawa tonight mm-hmm. leading into the game against San Jose tomorrow. And then, yeah, when you look at the big picture of it, they go out, they do the signings. You've got the buzz around the ownership sale yeah. of the team, which I, that actually is a real yeah. positive in the market. I think, you know, one thing, if you're an Ottawa exactly. Senators fan, you've got to feel good about this. There's people that want your team, not just one. There's multiple people that are interested in your team, in your market, and in your city because, you know, let's not hide the fact that part of owning the team will be to have the land deal at LeBreton Flats, which is development and real sure. estate and everything too. But that's, that's an excitement for your city. That's somebody wanting to invest in your city and believing in your city as well. So the fan base has to feel great about that. And then to be all excited about the on-ice product, and I, I remember telling a few people when they're asking me about Ottawa at the start of the year, I said, well, two things. First of all, when you bring in that many new bodies on a team, it's tough. So you got to build the chemistry quickly to hope it, it goes together. But for Ottawa, I was like, don't get off to a, a slow start in October. You can't make the playoffs in October, but you can miss them. And the Senators couldn't afford a slow start in October. And I think that they ran into some injury trouble and didn't have that mix going. And now they're playing catch up the rest of the way again. And that's where people go, oh, no. Here we go again. So the, the Senators have actually played some pretty decent hockey, especially uh, when they got Shabbat and Zub back on the blue line. That helped as well, and that goes to your yeah. injury point. Uh, so they have played much better, but now you're chasing. You're chasing the standings the whole time. So it's always tougher in that situation. So, um, you know, I, I think that's probably where the disappointment level was. There was so much uh, excitement and hype of what could be, and then to get out of the blocks, not with the, the best start that you wanted, and go, oh, no, we're chasing again. Um, and that's probably where the frustration level comes in. But, um, you know, for Ottawa, they've, they've got to find a way to keep trying to push through and keep trying to build on, on what they have here. They still have the young talent that they want to grow with this group and a good mix and, and find the right way to play. They've just got to be healthy and find a way to, to string a good chunk of games together uh, with some wins and some points. Let me uh, let me close on one player here with you, John, uh, and that's Tim Stutzla. 
uh, whether it's last year, whether it's this year, there's a, pretty much every single Ottawa Senators game I watch, there's always a moment where you get a glimpse of just how good this guy is and more so can be. Do you have a thought? He's a point of game guy. Like listen, he's you know, and he's and he's in his, his natural and, and proper spot playing in the middle. Um, what are your thoughts on on Tim Stutzla, this emerging star coming out of Ottawa? Yeah, you know, as you said, fun to watch, a lot of talent and everything. Yeah. Um, I think for him, he still needs to uh, have a little maturity in his game, um, and that's that's a growing pain that any young player goes through, especially a player that has this kind of skill and talent. So, um, and that's probably where it's good to have someone like Lotharu in the room uh, that can help guide him off ice as well, yep. and, and what to be expected as um, you know on the ice as a player, uh, because yeah, you have those moments of brilliance with Stutzla where you're like, oh, this is going to be good. And then you still have those, oh, there's a learning curve moment. Um, and, and that's what you want. You want him to have the maturity to, to take those moments, to learn from them, to be better as a player and, and you know, not make the same mistake twice and, and understand uh, what it is to, to be a, you know, a real good leader on and off the ice and a good team player. And, and that comes with time and, and experience when you have a young player like that. So uh, for Stutzla, I think that that's, that's probably one of the big uh, growing things for him this year is to find that maturity in his game and realize, okay, you've got a little bit of time under your belt in the league now. Now you've got to grow as a player uh, on a whole uh, to make yourself uh, even a better part of the Ottawa Senators moving forward. Such a high-skilled player. All right, look forward to the call tomorrow. Uh, Yourself, Gary Galley, Sean McKenzie, the San Jose Sharks, and the Ottawa Senators, part of Hockey Night in Canada. Watch it on Sportsnet 1 and City TV. My guest has been the great John Bartlett. Thanks, Bartz. Always a good good time catching up, my friend. You bet, Jeffy. Take care. We'll talk to you soon. There he is. 7 o'clock Eastern tomorrow, San Jose Sharks and the Ottawa Senators. The returning... I know it's been a while. This isn't like Line A coming back to Winnipeg tonight. Uh, the returning Eric Carlson. Although he's playing like he used to be an Ottawa Senator. What a season that defenseman is having. Uh, we'll hit a break. Uh, my producer, Matt Marchese, dropping by here in a couple of moments. Who has the toughest and most skilled front office? Questions you've never asked yourself will be answered next here on the Merrick Show across the Sportsnet Radio Network, simulcast on Sportsnet Now and Sportsnet 360. Back in a moment. Big guests and bigger opinions on everything happening in Leafsland. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. All right, so a couple of things here. The uh, Vancouver Canucks announcing they've called up uh, Colin Delia from Abbotsford, so not great news there for Thatcher Demko. Not exactly unsurprising, um, considering how he left the game yesterday. Um, the Detroit Red Wings uh, head coach Derek Lalone saying that Tyler Batuzzi had successful surgery this morning. He's expected to be out about six weeks. That's what science says. Matt Marchese joins me now. I couldn't resist, sorry. Uh, Matt Marchese joins me now. How are you doing today, Maddie? Well, nobody's ever dis- nobody's ever called me a scientist, Jeff, so I think we're, we're okay there. I couldn't resist making the obvious joke there. I'm sorry. I know that's going to offend a lot of people, but nonetheless, we, uh, we soldier on. Um, before we get into going over front offices of teams based on how tough or skilled they are, even though they're holding pens and wearing nice shoes instead of holding hockey sticks and wearing skates. Uh, anything jump out at you as far as trend-wise or team-wise? Like, is there a couple of things that, you know, really catch your eye the last couple of days, Matty? The leads is the obvious one. I mean, that's that goes yep. without saying. But the Kraken is the team that still, to this moment, befuddles me, Jeff. Because I look at the roster and Why I go, I, I just go, okay, sure. It's fine. It's fine. It's not seven games in a row. Good. But they're managing. And the one person that I don't think gets enough credit because he's the one who's helping make this team go because I don't think that they have a super amount of skill, but they're able to score goals. I think Dave Haxtell is, the for me, for my money right now, he's the front runner for the Jack Adams trophy. Ooh, over Jim Montgomery? Yeah. Because I and and, mm, and it's nothing against uh, the Boston Bruins. 
I know, I know. But you know what, Jeff? That Boston team, even though we wanted to make a big deal about, and we should have, about Marchand missing time and McAvoy, they still had really good players. Yeah. They still had guys on that team that you look at and go, yeah, those are those guys are, are pretty legit. You know, the improvement of Jake DeBrusque. We look at uh, Patrice Bergeron was back. They brought back David Krejci, Taylor Hall's there. Uh, they brought in Pavel Zaka. Mm-hmm. There's still a good group there. But when I look at Seattle, I go, um, uh, oh, oh, sure, uh, that that team could win a few games this year. But the fact that they're twelve one and one in their last fourteen games, and they're scoring goals yeah. at a pace that I didn't think they were capable of, and that's with as as if we look at the stats, below average goaltending, barely below, but below average goaltending. That's, goal that's true. okay. That's true. Right. That is true. So that is true. I I'm impressed. Yeah. Uh, Dave Haxtell for me. I know that may be hot takey, but leader for the Jack Adams Trophy right now. Uh, that might be a little bit hot takey for me, but I'll entertain it. But the the one thing, I mean, the Jack Adams is always an interesting trophy for me because it really does speak to what you, how much difference you feel a coach can make on a team. And there are some stories that are just obvious, right? Like there's the takes a bad team and makes them good story. And that's generally mm-hmm. been the default and, and how this award has been voted on. Oh, this team was bad. Now this team is good. So that must be the coach. So he gets the coach of the year. It's another school of thought that's, you know, taking a good team and making them great. And I'll entertain, you know, Jim Montgomery in that conversation because the Boston Bruins are this, you know, force of nature right now uh, in the NHL. And sure, there's been a little bit of massaging and David Krejci comes back and, you know, Linus Allmark is is, is popping and Lindholm has done a, such a great job there. But, you know, this has been, you know, a lot of how how Jim Montgomery has the Boston Bruins playing. But again, he's taken a good team, to your point, and made them a great team. And then there's the often undervoted on, underappreciated coach that has a great team and keeps them great. So I think a lot of the voting is based around what do you think the criteria should be or what is most impressive. And that one area that never gets any favor whatsoever is, and this is why... You know, this is you know why we see Tampa. Okay, this is why we see John Cooper has never won the uh, the Jack Adams as Coach of the Year. He's got a great team and he's kept them great. It's not a sexy story; they're just great. So you assume it's okay. Well, the players, but as any coach will tell you, as pretty much any hockey observer will tell you, you know, think of what Scotty Bowman was able to do with elite teams. You may look at that and say, "Well, I mean, you got a traveling All Star team. You should." Um, you should be able to, to behave like that and win as many games as they do and win championships, etc. In some ways, it's harder to keep those teams together because you have the egos and the contracts and everything that comes along with them um, to deal with. I still think it's just stunning how John Cooper hasn't even accidentally uh, won Coach of the Year. But I think a lot of it comes down to, again, Maddie, what your criteria is. The easy story has always been, this was a bad team. Now they're not a bad team. That guy gets Coach of the Year. Not saying that Hacksaw shouldn't be a consideration. I'm just saying that's the that that that's the criteria that you're using for your vote. Yeah, I I, I agree with that sentiment. My thing would be like Dave Hackstall, I to win the coach the Jack Adams, he probably needs to win the Pacific Division because I don't think anybody thought that they were going to even sniffing that, um, especially to be ahead of a team like Vegas. But I agree with you. Uh, John Cooper probably should have three Jack Adams trophies by now. What about Pete DeBoer? Yeah, there's another one. Bruce Cassidy. They didn't make Pete the playoffs DeBoer. last year. Bruce Cassidy. Wow, that was all in. Like we knew that. Right? That know, wasn't performance. So that was in that was injuries. They got they got crunched um because of injuries. Uh, how about Rick Bonus? Oh, okay, so that's uh like uh Rick that's there's another one. We thought this whole team was gonna get dismantled. We talked to Sarah Oleski in hour one. We all thought this whole team was gonna get picked apart. Well, no, they stripped the captain of his C and, and brought in Rick Bonus and they've been off to the races ever since. Um, okay, so I want to park enough time that we can have, uh, hopefully, some type of decent conversation. I threw this out there just as a, a sideways comment or, you know, uh, that we were having during a conversation earlier on this week. And so I think we've both spent collectively maybe 12 minutes <laughs> trying to figure out who has the toughest and most skilled front office in the NHL. Um, you want to go first? You want me to go first? Your choice. Do we want? Do we want to get the most skilled out of the way? Because that's a really easy one. It's Detroit. 
to yeah, the Red Detroit. Wings. And it's not even close. Yeah, Steve Eisman is general manager, Mark Howe, Nicholas Cronwall, Nick Lidstrom. Like, that's it. Like, good luck, everybody else. I'll, inter- I'll, I'll listen to some other arguments, but I'm sorry. Eisman, Mark Howe, Nick Cronwall, Nick Lidstrom. Detroit has the most skilled. I guess just being based on how they played in the NHL, folks. The most skilled front office, period. So we got that conversation out of the way quickly. Yep. Now, who's the toughest? Okay. I, I, I'm maybe a little bit biased because I like the guy who's at the top of the list. Um, and he's a, he, he was a big part of our show uh, for a while when, in its in its previous incarnation, the Pittsburgh Penguins, Jeff. Here we go. Okay. So give us, give us a list of names here. Cause there's, there's more than just a couple, by the way, with Pittsburgh. Yeah. So I went with, I went with my top four. So Brian Burke is at the top of the list and Brian, um, yeah. Self-proclaimed was not a very good hockey player, but he was tough. So that for me is enough. Um, anybody that cha- that challenges another GM to a fight in a barn is good in my books. Um, Ron Hextall, Any, anyone, anyone who, ch- any, any, hang on, anyone who challenges Paul Holmgren to uh, to come off the bench <laughs> to fight him. No, sorry, no. Berkey went came off the bench to fight Paul Holmgren in a I, can't, I don't know if it was a summer pickup game, game I think Minnesota hockey is summer game or something. Yep. Berkey by his own admission said I didn't do very well but someone had to go over the boards and fight Holmgren I love it I love it and and of course um Ron Hextall is is there as well yes absolutely whether fun. it's in the NHL or whether it's in junior hockey playing with the Brandon Wheat Kings was never shy um, about throwing down until he met a guy by the name of Felix Potvin. Yep. Uh, and who, by the, who, by the way, yep. by the way, the, by the way, that, that fight, there were two people in the rink that knew exactly what was going to happen. Felix Potvin, who, by the way, like going back to his, his, his early days in the province of Quebec, like him and the guys he ran with, and I, I think his brothers as well, like they were all like street tough guys. We think of Felix Podfan like the nice, mild-mannered goaltender. And Pat Burns, who used to work in law enforcement, knew the Podfans all too well. And Burns would always say, everybody was surprised that Podfan tuned up Ron Hextall, except for me and Felix. We knew exactly how that was going to end. The cat was legit tough, both on and off the ice. Yeah, I did hear the I did hear the stories about him growing up. Like oh, yeah. he grew up in in a rough neighborhood oh, yeah. and, and whatnot, and you you basically had oh, yeah. to be tough or else you were in trouble. Um, oh, so yeah. so Ron oh, yeah. Ron Hextall, yes, definitely tough and tough with a yep. stick as well, which was always fun. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, also on the list, Tom Kostopoulos, sixty four NHL fights, Jeffrey. Yeah, no, he was certainly tough too. Um, I will throw one other name at you as well here. And that is Chris Pryor. Yep, I had Chris him on my Pryor list. Chris well. Pryor was real, real tough as well. Like that, that's a really good, that's a really good top four. That's a really good top four, and and that one's going to be tough to beat. But I think there's one team that gives it a real run. Well, there's there's okay. there's a couple. So I wanted to say Vegas out of the out of the gate because of George McPhee, and as you talk about goalies that are real tough, Sean Burke. Who is who? Who's got to be in everybody's top three, as far as tough goaltenders go? Um, but there are two other teams that come to mind right away. One of the Boston Bruins, the other yep. the Florida Panthers. Now the Boston Bruins with Cam Neely on top as president, um, the director of pro scouting is the legend Dennis Bonvi. <laughs> If anyone knows your you know minor league minor league fights, you know all about Dennis Bonvi, and uh, player development coordinator is Adam McQuaid, yeah, who they is were second one of the me. sneakiest, one of the sneakiest raw bone tough guys um, who played uh, in in Adam McQuaid's era, which was about five minutes ago. The other, the Florida Panthers, and there's there's one guy specifically, like Shane Sherla is the director of amateur scouting. Uh, for the Florida Panthers. By the way, at Maple Leaf Gardens, there were, I've always considered, three like great fights. Um, one of them, I mean, one of them in, involved um, Orlin Kurtenbach. So that one goes back to like 19, uh, 1966 and Terry Harper. It's actually two, two separate fights in a brawl. 
Um, I got a copy of it. You know, Kurtenbach fights like a boxer and, and zipped Harper up in, in two distinct fights as everybody was trying to get a Bobby Bomb. But nonetheless, so that's like 1966, I want to say. The other was Wendell Clark and Rick Tockett, which is a legendary scrap. The other is Shane Sherla and Kevin McGuire when Shane Sherla played on the Hartford Whalers. Do yourself the favor if you are inclined to enjoy these types of things. And we all understand the sensitivities around them now that we probably should have understood then. Um, but Shane Sherla versus Kevin McGuire is one of the top three fights ever at Maple Leaf Gardens. The other there with the Panthers, Gregory Campbell, uh, was no shrinking violet uh, VP of the Florida Panthers. But the other one, who I don't ever think you know gets his due for being as tough as he was, and even into you know even in, I mean if you remember Todd Warner telling me the stories that when he was with him in, in Tampa. When he was a, a manager, like he'd be in in the in the in the gym, like you know, doing like 150 pound shoulder presses. Like he was always like real strong and kept himself in good shape. And when he played, whether it was in the WHA with the Cincinnati Stingers or whether it was in the the NHL, um, Rick Dudley. Ask anyone who crossed Rick Dudley. That guy was one of the toughest and strongest players in his or any other era. So I'm going to go with those for top three. A couple of other guys that you might want to mention as far as being tough that you know maybe you don't think about because you just think of them as general managers. You know who was real tough and was a southpaw and that surprised a lot of guys? Kevin Dayoff. Kevin Dayoff was real tough. Go have a look at his fight with Reed Simpson when they played in junior. Dayoff would have been playing for the Wheat Kings I think Reed Simpson was, I think he was playing Prince Albert, um, if memory serves. Chevy was real tough and a southpaw. Um, there's Basil McRae, assistant general manager with the Columbus Blue Jackets. Um, the director of player development for the New York Islanders is Eric Cairns, who you can remember was, was downright frightening. Um, and one other guy that I put in the class of uh, older school fans will, will appreciate this reference, Kurt Fraser's which is didn't do it all the time, but when he did it, it was scary. And he was scary tough. And he had a long fuse, and he didn't do it very often. But when he did, he came out on top, and that's Washington Capitals general manager Brian McClellan. Mm-hmm. Like, you've talked to Brian before, right? Mild-mannered, very polite, real you know, nice, very you know, thoughtful kind of person. And again, he didn't do it very often, but... You always, I think one of the mistakes we make is we look at penalty minutes and we say, oh, this guy must have been tough because he had a lot of penalty minutes. No, that just means that that player had a lot of fights. The scary guys are always the ones that only have like two or three fights per year because no one wants to go near them, right? Like guys didn't want to go near Nick Fatiu. Guys really didn't want to test someone like Ben Wilson. Those are the kind of guys and Brian McClellan was that guy as well. Guys knew, players knew. You don't go near McClellan. But uh, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm with you. That. It's probably it's probably Pittsburgh. <laughs> That's, That's me. You don't That's want to mess with me? Nobody wants to mess with me. That's my pet. So uh, my my actually a funny story because you mentioned George McPhee and mm-hmm. Brian McClellan. My first uh, GM and yeah. junior uh, was drafted by the Islanders during their dynasty. Played at Bowling Green with both of those guys. Sorry, who who was that? John Gibb. Oh, you told me about John Gibb. We got like we got like uh, thirty seconds here. Give us the time and temp on John Gibb, quick. Yeah, so so he's a, a girl. He lives in he lives in Nobleton, um, and he was a, a pal of my dad's. His kid played in minor hockey, and we ended up playing together later in junior. And he was drafted by the Islanders during their dynasty years, and went to camp with Ken Morrow and and all that stuff. But yeah, he played on the same nice. team as uh, as. Um, Brian McClellan and George McPhee in Bowling Green. You know who's going to be the most, you know who's going to be a real famous hockey player from Nobleton? With all due respect to Nick Boynton. That Fantilli kid's kind of good. Adam Fantilli with the University of Michigan Wolverines, who will most likely be second overall in the draft this year. Great stuff, Matty Marchese. Uh, Thanks to Frank Baraska for operating the camera and making the show look decent. That's challenging when I'm involved. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Brett Armstrong. Uh, technical operator. Thanks to Elliot Friedman, the great Sarah Orleski for stopping by, John Forsland, and John Bartlett as well. We're back on Monday.